And I just want to read one verse uh, before we get started this morning. It says, and this is Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 5. And then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by the genealogy. Let us pray. God, I'm so grateful for you this morning. I'm grateful um, of what we sang. I pray those are not just words, God, but those words um, would penetrate our heart this morning. Uh, that you are ever present and you abide in us. And God, your love overwhelms us, overpowers us, and it's all in us. God, I pray that this morning we would leave here knowing that, uh, that we are loved by you, that no matter what we've done, uh, we've been forgiven, we've been set free, uh, your love conquers all things, and therefore uh, you abide in us and give us hope in life. God, I pray for us this morning as we go to your word, I pray that you would encourage us with it. I pray for all the other churches here in the area that even this very moment are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would use them in a powerful way, Holly Grove and Hickory Grove. Um, we pray for Walter Hill. We pray for Lighthouse. We pray for all the churches that stand upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use uh, those men and those pulpits this morning to proclaim your truth and to set the captives free. We pray that would be true for us. God, it will take all of God's people uh, to reach all of God's people. It will not just happen because of this one church. It will happen collectively of the churches here in Murfreesboro, Walter Hill, and all over the world. Continue to use the church, God, to proclaim your goodness and your greatness and to redeem lost people. Pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Be seated. We will be in Nehemiah chapter 7. We'll be uh, going through now, this is going to sound like a lot. Someone before the service said, are you really going to try to cover 73 verses this morning? I said, yes. And they said, well, maybe I just need to go home then. Uh, you're going to be here a while. I said, well, you do what you got to do. But we will. We'll go verse by verse uh, through the 73 verses here in Nehemiah chapter 7. This is chapter 7. If, we, if you remember from last week, the walls have been finished. So the very thing that God had placed on Nehemiah's heart uh, some nine months prior to this moment had been accomplished. You remember that Nehemiah was just a cupbearer in the king's uh, front office, and what the cupbearer did was he got to taste all the food and drink all the wine that came before uh, the king. Not a bad job, really, other than you might die. But, I mean, I could die just driving, uh, well, definitely here in Nashville for sure. Uh, it's not so bad in other places, but here. So he had a great job. And God had called him and God had placed on to his heart when his brother, we'll see his brother again here in Nehemiah chapter 7, his brother came with the message, hey, God's people are in exile and there's no place as they've returned home to worship God. The temple's restored, but the walls have not been restored. We need, you need to get back home and restore the walls so that the people of God can have their place to worship. And so Nehemiah goes and you, we see the heart of Nehemiah and Nehemiah's heart Heart is broken when he sees the walls that are devastated. And it wasn't that the, he was devastated because of the walls. He was devastated that the people of God had no place to worship. And so Nehemiah, as we went verse by verse up until this point, had assembled some people to rebuild the walls. Uh, remember, these walls were eight feet wide and about two, two and a half miles in circumference. It's a massive wall. It is a massive wall. And it took him 52 days to rebuild the whole wall. And here in chapter 7, we get to a crucial moment in the life of Israel. And we could read this chapter, and it's 
just most of it is just name after name after name. It's just a genealogy of people. And so we could just skip right over to genealogy because it's names that I definitely can't pronounce and uh, don't really want to try to go through every single name. And so, so often we can come to genealogies and just skip over and get to the next chapter. But every genealogy in the book of the Bible has great importance. Great importance. We see the, 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 in the very first gospel, we see the genealogy of Christ. And that's so important for us to see that from the moment that God had created Adam and Eve, he had a purpose and a plan to get to what Matthew chapter 1 talks about, to Christ's coming. And so we could come to this genealogy and think to ourselves, now why did Nehemiah spend a whole chapter just talking about names and numbers? Well, there's a reason for that. Remember, now the walls have been restored and the people of God have a place to worship God. But here's the crucial part. There's no one in the city to worship God. They're still dispersed all over uh, the known world. And so it doesn't really do Nehemiah much good. It doesn't do God any good to rebuild the walls, to have a church that no one comes and worships. And so we'll look at this moment in history that Nehemiah is used again by God to restore the people of God to worship a holy God. We see this happen in, in nine ways. And the tenth is kind of a culmination of all nine. And so the first thing that we see, we see that the obedience and the generosity of God's people, but it happened through one man. It happened through the leadership of Nehemiah. So we could come this morning and think, well, Nehemiah, he, he was a pastor, he was a priest. He, no, Nehemiah was just like you. And I say not like me because I'm a pastor, I'm a priest. He was like you. But yet God used a layman to restore the whole country of of Israel so that some uh, a thousand or so years after this moment in time, there would be a place where Jesus Christ would come. This is important. This chapter 7 is so important for what is coming in the New Testament. And so here's the genealogy. Here's what it took for the people of God to continue to be the people of God for the coming of Christ Jesus. That Christ Jesus would come and reign supreme on his kingdom. Not just his earthly kingdom, but for sure his heavenly kingdom. And we see this in several ways. This is what Nehemiah does. I believe this is what we must do if we are going to be the people of God to restore this city of God. I've said it from the outset of this series. Uh, It's from the outset that Nehemiah was set on him. From the moment that Nehemiah was born, God had a purpose and a plan for his life. We see that in Jeremiah 29.11. Every one of us, God has a purpose and a plan for our lives. If you read the New Testament, you'll see over and over, the purpose is for you and for me as Christ believers to be used by God to redeem the city of God. And so God has placed you wherever he's placed you for one purpose and one purpose only. It's to be used as an agent of God to bring restoration to the lostness around you. So it's not just your job. Some of you, you don't just drive a bus for driving a bus. You don't just work at a company to work at a company. God chose you and placed where he placed you for one purpose and one purpose only. It's to bring redemption to that place. And so for us, God has placed us in Walter Hill, Tennessee, Smyrna, Murfreesboro, wherever your home is, God chose you to be there. He could have chose to put us anywhere on the planet, 
but he chose to put us where he has placed us for one purpose, is to redeem this city. This is a very lost city. Though we're in the Bible bed of the South, this is a very lost city. Amen? I just walk around the city. The depravity the, the in our city, the depravity in Nashville, it's overwhelming. I don't know if you've ever been downtown uh, to Murfreesboro or downtown to Nashville on a, on a Friday night, but that's a pretty depraved place. And God has not called us to come to a bubble and to sit in our bubble. God has called us here so that therefore we'll go out, we'll get that to the very end of the passage, to go out and to bring redemption. And so how does that happen? How are we going to do that? How did Nehemiah do that? We see nine ways. With tenth, the tenth one uh, covering the whole chapter here in chapter 7. The very first thing we see in verse 1. We must honor spiritual priorities. We must have our spiritual priorities in place. How do we see this in Nehemiah chapter, chapter 7, verse 1? Now when the walls had been built, they were finished. I, Nehemiah, had set up the doors. And then he, there's, we see three different people that Nehemiah has appointed. He says, I had set the doors in place. The gatekeepers, the singers, and the, the Levites had been appointed. So the first thing that we must see is that we all in this place have physical needs. The very first thing that Nehemiah does, he addresses the physical need of the people. We'll see that again in this passage. You you see, he could have had the walls in place. The walls were not going to be the only thing that was going to be placed there for protection. And so part of that for us in this city, God has placed us here to help bring protection to people. It's to have a generous heart, and we'll get to the generosity, not just with our wallets, but with everything that God has given to us. What are we doing, what am I doing to bring protection to the city? How am I making this a literally safe place for Tennyson and Cedar to grow up in? Or am I just hoping that everyone else does their civil duties to do them? Am I just hoping for the, the firemen or the policemen, or you fill in the blank? I've got one of my dear, dear friends is, is an Atlanta police officer, and I'm so grateful for him right now. I'm grateful for all of our service people that keep us safe. They're getting such a bad rap, and we as believers are not coming behind them to help support that. And so we must bring protection to our city. That's why he placed the gatekeepers where he placed them, all along the city wall over the two-and-a-half-mile place because he knew that the wall was not going to be the only place of protection. The next thing that we see, and it's a huge need for us, it's the spiritual need to worship. We must provide spiritual places to worship a holy God, not just the church, not just the temple. Is my home, is your home, a place that people could come and experience Christ Jesus? Is it a place of worship? That's what he says. I place the gatekeepers in their place, and all along the city wall I place the singers. The singers were just those who uh, brought about the worship of God. I don't know what it was like there. I don't know if like every half mile or so some guys out there and they have a choir singing, but I do know that those people all along the wall, the historians tell us, were providing places outside the temple of God to worship. They had great boldness. The next thing that we see, this is, these are all lay people, except for this last one. And it may be true for you this morning. The intellectual need of teaching 
for God's people. You see, God's people are only going to know God's word if they're taught God's word. Amen? And so he says, I place the Levites in their place so that their intellectual minds, their intellectual hearts would know the things of God. And so for us, for you, it's so important. Has God placed on your heart the gift and ability to teach? Not just me. And we're coming up in September. We need more and more teachers. We don't have enough teachers. I'll probably say this and get in trouble, but that's all right. I tend to do that. We ought not to have a nominating committee. And here's why. Because the people of God ought to be busting down the doors of God to teach God's word. Right now, we're struggling to find teachers. That ought not to be so here at the church. We must such have a, such a passion for God's word that we'll teach God's word. And I know you may say, well, I'm not a teacher. I'm, I'm not, I can't understand the word. No, God's placed his heart and his mind in, there, in you. Therefore, you can teach the word of God. It doesn't just take one person. All of God's people can be equipped to teach God's word. And so the first thing that we see are the spiritual priorities of Nehemiah. Are our spiritual priorities here at the church in place? The second one of this, we see reliable partners. Right? He goes and says, I've set all these people in place, and now I've got this man to my right and to my left. The, the first one is his brother, Hanai and Hananiah. So Hanai was his brother. He was the civil leader of, he would be like the mayor of Jerusalem. So he took care of all the civil duties in the city. And yet then he had another man, Hananiah, was the military leader of the city. He's the one that brought the protection. So he needed a man on his right hand to uh, bring the civil things into place, and he needed military backing. He had reliable people. And the question for me when I was reading this, am I a reliable person? Am I a reliable leader? Are you a reliable church member? It takes reliable people to bring on and expand the kingdom of God. We we see that in the first few few sentences after this part. He says, I put my brother Hananiah in this place and Hananiah, the governor of the castle in charge of over Jerusalem. And this is what he says about these two men. For he was more faithful and God-fearing uh, than any other man. And so the next thing, not only are we to be reliable, there's a lot of reliable people that have no intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, you work with unbelievers that are reliable, right? I mean, there's some of the most intelligent people, most reliable people in the business world. They just do not fear God. So we not only do we need reliable people, we must have God-fearing people. So for me, am I reliable and do I fear God? That's the second thing, priority that we see. The third one is this. It's found in verse 3. He says, And I said, Nehemiah said to them, to these two men, Let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. Underline that in your Bible. I promise I'll get back to that. And while they were still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their homes. The next thing that we must see, we must uh, recognize specific dangers. You see, Nehemiah knew that the wall was not the only place that danger would come and that people would eventually, we see it over and over, those walls did not keep the people out of 
Jerusalem. There are no more walls around Jerusalem. So we know that not to be true. And so Nehemiah knew that there was danger. And so what did Nehemiah do? He recognized the danger and put people in charge all around the city at a certain time. You may think, well, what, what does it have to do anything with uh, the, the, the sun coming out? Well, that was when he said, hey, when the sun is at its hottest, and if you've been anywhere around the world other than America, when the sun is at its hottest, most of the world takes what we call a siesta. They go home and they fall asleep. So Nehemiah would know, that the enemies would know, hey, there's a siesta coming at the hottest point of the day, so therefore they probably aren't going to be on guard. And so Nehemiah says to these two men, hey, at our most vulnerable places, we must be ready for attack. And so for you and for me, the translation is this, do you know where your danger comes from? Do I know my most vulnerable places in my life? Do you know that? And therefore, if you know that, then you'll do what he did in the previous verse. You'll put men in your life or women in your life to protect you when danger is coming. Danger is coming. You see, this whole passage here in chapter 7 is all about community. It's all talking about community. As the church, we must live in community with one another. So there must be people in your life and in my life that know where I'm vulnerable at the most. And the only way for them to know that is for me to know that and then to tell them that. The church calls it accountability. I think we, the church, has really robbed and sabotaged that word. It's really just being known by other people. Are you known by other people? Do you know your dangerous spots? Because there is another person that knows your most dangerous spots. You see, the enemies knew Jerusalem's most dangerous, vulnerable places. And God's word tells us we have an enemy. Amen? We have an adversary, Peter tells us, that prowls around like a roaring lion, ready to devour us. You see, Satan goes after the vulnerable. And here's the deal. We are all vulnerable people, men and women in this place. We need to stay in a herd. We need people to know us. We need to be known men and women. The fourth thing that we see is he had a plan and he encouraged the plan. He goes on in verse 4 and he says this. The city was wide and large but circle that in your Bible. The people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. You see, Nehemiah has a plan. Nehemiah has a strategy. Nehemiah knows, hey, i got to get people inside this city because if there's no people inside the city, that when they come and attack us again, we're, we're in great danger. If we only have a few families that live inside this wall, when the enemies come, they're going to overpower us. And so he had a strategic plan. His plan was to put as many people inside the city as possible to rebuild the city, not just to rebuild the walls. And for us this morning, do we have a strategic plan in rebuilding our city? Do we have a plan to mobilize people, Christians, to infiltrate this city so that this city becomes uh, Christ followers all around? 
You see, it's not going to take this building on a Sunday morning from 10.30 to 11.30 to get the Word of God out all over the city. Look around. We must have a plan to leave this place and go into the city with the message, with a plan to redeem the city. See, that's why we say here at Powell's Chapel, our mission statement is this. We want to know God and we want to make God known. We want to fully know God with all of our passions, our heart's desires, and then fully make him known. That's the reason we do VBS. That's the reason we do movie night. That's the reason we do kids' workshop. It isn't just so that your children have a place to do fun things. It's a place that the the people of God can provide a way to the people that aren't in the church to experience Christ's love. But even those things won't be enough to take the word of God to our city. Are we being strategic in redeeming the lost cities around us? We can't just stay in our isolated bubble. That's not what Nehemiah had in mind for this city. Again, it goes back to the New Testament. The workers are few, but the harvest is plentiful. And we have been called by God to be the workers of the harvest. Will we go? The, second, the fifth thing is this. It's found in the very first half of verse 5. Then God put into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to enroll them by the genealogy. This has been a theme for Nehemiah. It must be a theme for us in our lives. We must seek divine guidance. Let me read that verse again. Then my God put into my heart. You see, none of this plan was Nehemiah's plan. From the very get-go, Nehemiah was sitting in a castle minding his own business until God, he started crying out to God, and God began to change Nehemiah's heart. God began to break his heart, and breaking God's heart, Nehemiah, over and over and over, we've seen that through these first seven chapters, that Nehemiah is a man after God's heart. He's a man that relies on the scriptures. He's a man that is seeking God with all that he has. Nehemiah is a man that is seeking divine guidance. And therefore, it wasn't Nehemiah's wisdom or insight or intelligence that said, hey, I want you to bring all these people and get a genealogy. No, he had sought God and God placed it on his heart. Are we seeking God for the plan? You see, am I the pastor seeking a plan for this church? Or is it just the, my best idea? My best life now? I've never known. I better not go there. Am I seeking God? Are you seeking God? Because here's the truth of God. God has a bigger heart for this city than you and I combined. How do we know that? Because God sent his only son to redeem lost people. So God has a plan how God wants to use his church to reach lost people. But we must seek him with all of our heart the way Nehemiah did. Are we seeking God? The sixth one is this. It says, I found the book of the genealogy of those who had came up at first, and I found written in it. And this is where the genealogy he begins to add to the genealogy and look back on the genealogy. The second thing he said, we see, or the sixth thing that we see Nehemiah do, he utilizes his available help. Here's what God taught me this week with deep conviction. That's, that's, I, 
uh, some parts of me wishes we taught this message last Sunday. I pray that this church would never forget the founding fathers of this church. If you have not had a chance, go online and read Bethany's blog. Over, over the last several weeks, she's, been, she's written a blog about the history of Powell's Chapel. You see, this genealogy was given to us to, as a help to remind us of all that God had done. All that God had accomplished. That's what this genealogy is for. That's what all, every genealogy is there for, is to help us and remind us of all that God has done for us. And so that's what he does. He reads over this list of names and numbers over and over again to be encouraged, to be reminded of what God has done. You see, we have an adversary who wants to distract us from all that God has done, to help us forget the power of God. Because in our most discouraging moments, I don't know about you, I know it's true for me, in my most discouraging moments, I forget the power of God. I forget that God's been at work and God is at work. I just tend to forget that. Satan blinds me of that. And so we need to look back at the history of our church. We need to look back on the history of God to say that God, man, is faithful. God is good. God is caring. God is love. That's what this genealogy did for Nehemiah. He utilized this list of names and numbers as a help to replenish his heart where it was discouraged. And here's the beauty of genealogies. A genealogy is never completed. Like, I have a genealogy that's going now into Tennyson and Cedar. Therefore, that genealogy will continue and continue and continue until Christ returns. And so God is adding to our genealogy. And so not only do we want to look in the past of all that God has done, but we also want to look into the future. How are we going to be a church 141 more years from now that is being a church that other men and women would come and give stories of the greatness of God? What are we doing today that 140 years from now there will be another man in this pulpit or other pulpits around the world saying, man, this is what God did at this small church in Walter Hill. This is what God did with my Sunday school teacher. This is what God did as I was in the choir. This is what God did at a movie night. This is what God did at VBS. That's that's my prayer has been for those kids that came a few weeks ago to VBS, that that would begin their genealogy of all that God has done in their life, and they will speak that forward to the next generation. We have to be a church that not only looks to the past, but looks to the future. Are we doing that? I'm so grateful for those men and women on that plaque about 100 feet from here that sacrificed all they had to give us a place of worship. Let me say that again. They sacrificed all they had. Are we sacrificing all that we have? Now, our sacrifice might look different than their sacrifice. But they sacrificed a ton for this church to be here this morning. Will we sacrifice a ton so that church will still be here 140 years from now? What will the genealogy be said about Powell's Chapel 140 years? Here's the next thing that he does. Verses 6 through 60. I won't read all of them. It's just names after names after names after names. But we see groups of people that Nehemiah identified their gifts. Not only did he identify their gifts, but these men were called and used their gifts 
and they knew their gifts. Do you know your gifts? Do you know how you've been uniquely gifted by God to be used by God? We see about nine different kinds of people, nine different gifts, if you will. The first one is in verse 6 and 7. They were the original leaders. They were the men and women that had made it possible. That's the beauty of this church. We're multi-generational, so we still have men and women that were here a long time ago. I'm so grateful for Brother Bruce Short that he's been here 94 years. I don't know how uh, very many other churches that have a member in their church that has been there 94 straight years. Let me say that again. 94 years, Brother Bruce has sat in that pew. That's a faithful man of God. I'm grateful for you, Mr. Bruce. You make it possible for me to do this. I pray that we will never forget the original leaders that are still with us doing this. That's one of the great tragedies of the church of today. We've become either traditional or contemporary or acoustic or you fill in the blank. That is not what heaven's going to be like. There's not going to be acoustic heaven. There's not going to be a rock band heaven. There's not, it's going to be the people of God from all over the world singing the praises of God and whatever music they want to sing all at the same time. And that's going to be crazy, I know, but still, that's what's going to happen. The next people that we see are just laymen. He goes through verses 8 through 38, 30 verse of just what these lay people did. Men like you, women like you, had other jobs, but they continued to work for the the people of God to make sure that the people of God had a place to go. The next thing we see is in 39 and 42, the priest. There has to be priest. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe God is tugging at your heart to become a pastor. It's not too late. You're not too old. You're not too young. God be, be calling you now. Or verse 43 is the Levites. Or maybe God is placing in you what we see in verse 44, singers. Or verse uh, 45, gatekeepers. I'm grateful for our gatekeepers. Did you know we have gatekeepers? That Jonathan's one of them. If some crazy man comes in, he's the gatekeeper. He's going to be met with something else other than his fist, if you know what I mean. That's why I've got this pulpit. I'm just going to duck behind here. Sorry for the rest of y'all. I got this handy-dandy pulpit. But we do need people that will watch over us and bring us safety. The second thing we see is, or the next thing that we see is temple servants, those who served in the temple. We'd call you Sunday school teachers, uh, all the, the different uh, offices here at the church. We see descendants of the servants of Solomon. The next thing, 56 through 60. And the last thing we see is just people that didn't know who they were. They questioned their ancestry, but we see those people all throughout this genealogy are just people that were being used by God over and over and over again. But yet God was using their unique gifts to accomplish the things of God. The eighth thing as we begin to wrap up is found in 61 through 65. Here's what Nehemiah says. I won't read all the names, but basically there's this other group of people that came up and it says this. In verse 63, also the priests, the sons of Hobai, the sons of Hagzal, I, I don't know his name, I just make it up. You just got to go with it sometimes. He lists these names. These sought 
their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies. This is the important part. Circle this in your Bible. But it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood of, as unclean. And so what we see here in the next part is this. That here's these men that proclaim to be something, and yet Nehemiah looks at the genealogy and says, hey, you're, that's not true about you. Here's what Nehemiah did. He obeyed biblical teaching even when it was tough. Nehemiah knew the truths of God, and Nehemiah knew that you could not be an unclean priest. And he, so he said to these men, though you say that you're priests, there's something about you that says you're unclean. He stuck. He knew the word of God. He had biblical conviction. He knew biblical teaching, and he obeyed biblical teaching. It's one thing to know, and it's a whole other thing to obey. We must know the word of God. But we must obey the word of God. And so the, for me and for you, do I know God's word? And if I answer yes to that, do I obey God's word? If I don't answer the first one correctly, there's no way for me to answer the next one correctly. If you do not know God's word, you won't obey God's word. And so it starts, do you know God's word? Nehemiah knew God's word. The ninth thing is this. And we look at this, and we look at money, we look at monetary stuff, but we can apply it to us. It's not just money that, that, they, that Nehemiah encouraged generosity. Though he does in verse 66 through 673. It's just number after number of all that the people of God had given. The, the, the scholars estimate it's about $5 million worth in value that these men gave. But you've got to remember who these men were. These were not the rich of the rich of the rich. Though there were some, these were some of the poorest of the poor of the poor. They had spent years and years and years in exile. They had no job, really. They had no real way of making an income. But what we see is these men obeyed God and gave generously to God. Over $5 million worth of stuff so that the people of God could have a place to worship God and take the message of God all over. Are we generous people? I'm not just talking about our pocketbooks. Are we generous with our time? Are we generous with our gifts? I don't mean gifts that you give. I mean the gifts that God has given to you. Are we generously using all that God has given to us to bring uh, lost people to him? Are we using our gifts? We see two things as we are to be generous givers. The first thing is we must be sacrificial givers. Meaning, when we give, it has to hurt some. I mean, just the word sacrifice means to kill. So if we are to give sacrificially, the same way that Christ gave his life sacrificially, when I give, do I feel it? Or is it just, oh, here's, this is easy to give. When we give, we must give sacrificially. Whether that's two pennies, like the woman in the New Testament, or that's two million pennies. I don't know what you are giving, and I don't care what you're giving. I hope is that you are obey, being obedient in what you give, and the obedience isn't just that you give, but you give sacrificially. God doesn't call us just to give. God calls us to give sacrificially. And the next thing it says is this. Over and over, it talks about the heads of the fathers of the houses gave to the work. This is to you men, and you men only in the room. Ladies, you can close your ears. Men, are we leading by example? 
Are we leading our families by example of living sacrificial lives? That's such a challenge for us. Because where I lead my family is where my family will go. Where you men lead your family is where you will lead your family. They will go. They will follow after you. Does Tennyson and does Cedar in this very moment at five years old and one and a half years old, are, they are looking to me and are they looking at me and seeing a man that live sacrificially? Not stupidly, but sacrificially. Am I leading my family well? Because if I'm going to lead my family well, I'm going to have to sacrifice a lot. I'm going to have to sacrifice a, 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 extra time in the morning to get up and read God's word. My hope and my prayer is that Tennyson and Cedar will see me live sacrificially that way. I hope they see me engaged in God's word. But that is going to take sacrifice on my part and your part. Are they going to see me live sacrificially, giving my life back to the church? Are they going to see me give sacrificially my life to other people? Are they going to see how I'm giving sacrificially that I want to see the kingdom of God expanded all over the world? We will lead by example, men. And the last thing that we see as a culmination of all these, through one, verse 1 through verse 73, is this. Do we exercise responsible stewardship? Across the board, are we good stewards with all that God has given to us? All of our talents, all of our money, all of our gifts, our house, our cars, our, you fill in the blank. Are we living as good stewards of all that God has given to you? Do you realize that? Do I realize that all that I have is a gift from God? Everything I have, this suit is a gift from God. My shoes, my socks are a gift from God. How do I know that? How do you know that? Look around the world to other believers. They don't have those same gifts. You and I, the, the, the greatest challenge we're going to have today at lunch is deciding where we go to lunch. But we have brothers and sisters that at this very moment, they don't have a decision where they're going to go to lunch. They have a decision of how they're even going to eat, and some will go without eating. Do I live sacrificially within the kingdom of God, not in just kingdom, but the kingdom universal? Am I giving my life to the kingdom of God to be advanced? You see, everything that we do will play throughout eternity over and over and over and over and over and over again. God says we must give an account for all that we do. And when I get to heaven and God asks me, hey, what'd you do with this gift I gave you? What'd you do with that gift I gave you? I'm going to have to give an account for that. That is a scary thought. That's a frightening thought. And so for me, as we come to the end of chapter 7, and we come, hey, how is it just a list of names over and over and over and over again? We see this list of names as people that gave generously. Their time, their money, their resources, that's the reason they're here. Well, you, do you flip over to Hebrews, the, the great wall of fame, the great hall of fame that Hebrews talks about. Those are men and women that lived generously, that lived sacrificially. What will be said about you in the genealogy of your life, genealogy of this church, the genealogy of the kingdom of God? Here's what I do know as we end. What God has called us to is to know him and to make him known. We see this two places. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20. 
Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And then when, he saw, when they saw him worship, but some doubted, verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And here's our promise. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The second thing we see is in Acts chapter 8, or chapter 1, verse 8. And he says this, in culmination to the going, he says this right before his ascension to uh, God's people after the 40 days. But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in Judah, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The very first place that we see that God has called his people is Jerusalem. That's where they were at that very moment. And then to go out from there. God has called you here to Walter Hill. God has called you here to Powell's Chapel. How will we be men and women that live in obedience and sacrificially the way that God used Nehemiah and the way that God used the people of Nehemiah? You see, we have the New Testament, partly because we have Nehemiah chapter 7. Because the people of God prepared the way of God all the way to Matthew chapter 1 where the next genealogy is talked about, the provision of Christ coming to Jerusalem to redeem the whole world. I still believe that God wants to use you, and God wants to use me, and God wants to use this church to redeem the lost people. How will we respond to that call with obedience and generosity? Let me pray. God, I'm grateful for this passage. I pray that we would be men and women that would live sacrificially and we would live generously. God, you've given us so much, so much, and it's so challenging to be reminded of all that you've given me, and yet you ask me to steward all that you've given to me. God, I pray as a church, you would let us be a church that stewards well all that you've given to us. God, I'm faithful, I'm grateful for the faithfulness of the men and women that do give here generously and sacrificially. And now, God, I pray that we be good stewards with what you've given to us. God, I pray that as one body, as one unit, you would speak your plan of redemption to this city, to us, and we would hear clearly how you want to use Powell's Chapel to redeem this city. Just Walter Hill, first and foremost. This is our Jerusalem, God. Use us. You are a faithful and good God. We submit ourselves to you. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. If you're here-